as yet undiscovered by the Motion Picture Academy. And they have one theme. And, and, and by the way, the other two that are coming up will be in the announcement portion of the uh, next two weeks, not in, embedded here. But they have one theme, and that is the law. Okay? That is Sedine's Rules. We have our annual family camp coming up at Sedine Bible Camp. And uh, uh, Sedine has rules for various things that we want to comply with. It's their camp. And uh, we're just happy to... to uh, to do what they ask. It's not hard. And although they are not trying to quantify modesty, I guess you have to draw the hemline somewhere. Yeah. So for three, three Sundays, we'll be sharing with you Sedan Rules video trilogy, and you'll really enjoy the one about the bicycle. I worked very hard on the bicycle trick. Here, here's the deal. Every institution has... Rules. Some rules address moral behavior. Some rules are just institutional. That is where we say, okay, we function better if we operate this way. Kind of like getting your family camp registration in today. Um, so, so there are, here's the thing, but no one would say that keeping these rules would change your standing before God. At least we would not say that. The Bible would not say that. And we want to make sure that we're not thinking that way because it is almost the default position of our minds. In New Testament times, the rabbis had taken God's law in the Old Testament and had reduced them to a list of 613 commandments. 613. 248 were thou shalts and 365 were thou shalt nots. But that's not all. Then the rabbis added countless rules that also had to be kept if you wanted to be holy. Here's the thing. The scripture makes it clear that God gave the law to show the need for salvation, not to become the means of salvation. And, and the New Testament rabbis had elevated legalism to an art form so that by the time uh, Jesus came on the scene, and, and then later on, Paul is writing the book of Romans. The Jews had almost come to worship not God or not even his law, but their interpretations of his law more than the God who gave the law. So when Paul wrote to the book of uh, wrote the, to the book of Romans to these Roman Christians, he wanted to be absolutely clear about how we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and how we are sanctified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We've been studying Romans 6 and 7 about not being under the law. And in Romans 7, Paul refers to the law 23 times. Some of the, com the comments that he makes refer to the law of Moses. Some of them actually refer to any law, any kind of law, which could be misunderstood as an external standard of righteousness whereby we try to earn God's favor. But the whole discussion is about how we are both saved by grace and sanctified by grace. And now we come to verses 13 through 25. And, and Tracy, you did a great job, brother, reading through these verses. And I don't know if you were listening to that, Listening to the recitation of these verses, did you get the feeling that Paul was reading your diary? 
Or that maybe he had you under surveillance because that's the way I feel. You think that he's looking at a picture of you and dissecting your soul, but he's not. In fact, he's not even looking at a picture of you at all. I think the Apostle Paul is looking in the mirror here. He's describing himself. And what we're about to see in these verses is entirely countercultural. In this sense, almost every philosophy or belief system that exists tells you that you are really a good person deep down. That somehow you are misunderstood. Some of them, even uh, some of the most popular TV preachers um, say the same thing, uh, including the prosperity gospel. And they're, they're good at marketing, but they're not so good at biblical truth. Now, I use PowerPoint maybe once or twice a year to try to uh, when I think it's helpful to make a point. I hope I hope it is. But I just just I want to drill down in this idea of where we are as a culture. And, and a friend of mine um, uh, pointed out an interesting literary contrast between two mad scientists. And maybe this will help drill it down a little bit more effectively. Two mad scientists. Um, Dr. Jekyll and Dr. Frankenstein. So think about this with me. Uh, these are two doctors who were obsessed with something. Uh, one was obsessed with separating good from bad in his soul, and the other was obsessed with creating life from non-life. Each story ends with the death of the scientist. But both stories interpret the nature of humanity in very different ways. And one of these stories is actually true, but not both. And everybody on earth believes that one of them is true. But which one? Well, there we disagree. And the question is actually, what is the nature of man? It's the question that Romans addresses. It's the question that Romans 7 nails down. Even apart from the question of God's image, are we basically good on the inside or are we a mixture of that which is both good and bad? For Dr. Jekyll, man's nature is a mixture of good and evil. Even the fascination with evil, the temptation to become Mr. Hyde is evil. And so he would take drugs that turn Jekyll into Hyde and that became easier and easier until Hyde could take over without the potion and Jekyll was unable to revert to himself there's no good news to be found in our own hearts we cannot save ourselves that's the point here now for Dr. Frankenstein the story is very different and by the way Frankenstein was not the main name of the monster throughout the book the name of the monster is the monster that's it okay uh, he was horrible to look at but he was innocent. The monster confronts Frankenstein and he says this to his maker. I was benevolent and good. Misery made me a fiend. Make me happy by creating a wife. You know, I can see a sequel to that movie, can't you? And I shall again be virtuous, says the monster. Now, what made him go bad? What made him horrific? 
society. He wasn't treated well by other people. They shunned him. They wronged him because they were afraid of how he looked. Eventually, because of an environment filled with people that rejected him, he responded in violence and rage. Every, virtually every non-Christian believes that the story of Frankenstein is his story. Every non-Christian system of thought. His bad behavior is not really his fault. It's really the fault of our parents. Or maybe it's the fault of our schools. Or maybe it's the fault of that teacher. Or maybe it's the fault of my boss. Or maybe it's the fault of my husband or my wife or my genes or whatever. It's not me. It's not my fault. I blame others. The solution is to fix the externals. Fix the environment. Fix the job. Fix the person. That other person. Not fix something inside me. Now, I'm oversimplifying here, but much of the philosophy behind programs that are in place now through our government to change our schools, our prisons, our institutions are based on environmental circumstances, not based on changing the person. And the gospel of the Frankenstein crowd is that everybody is basically good and you don't need outside help. You need a nudge. To help you fix your own problem for yourself. And I'm going to show you some of the main voices that have formed the way thinkers in our culture evaluate who we are. Psychologists, social scientists, uh, and they, they either are these people or reflect these people. For example, Carl Rogers, the famous psychotherapist, said, for myself... Though I am very well aware of the incredible amount of destructive, cruel, malevolent behavior in today's world, from the threats of war to the senseless violence in the streets, and this was in 1982, I do not find that this evil is inherent in human nature. Oh, really? Abraham Maslow. As far as we know, we just don't have any intrinsic instincts for evil. You've heard the name Aldous Huxley, author of Brave New World. It is because we don't know who we are, because we are unaware. See, we don't know of the kingdom of heaven, that the kingdom of heaven is within us, that we behave in the generally silly and often inane, insane, and the sometimes criminal ways that are so characteristically human. We are saved. We are liberated and enlightened by perceiving the hitherto unperceived good that is already within us. Are you looking at that and saying, huh, where do you get that? The Humanist Manifesto, while there is much that we do not know, humans are responsible for what we are or will become. No deity will save us. We must save ourselves. And I could just multiply case after case after case. Uh, you could look at John Dewey's pragmatism in the realm of education and so forth. Now, by contrast, Dr. Jekyll was born into a good environment. But within his own heart, he chose what was evil. He had no one to blame but himself for his choices. Every atheistic philosophy, every transcendental religion, as well as every theistic religion, except for Christianity, says that our story is the story of Frankenstein. We have no sin nature. And that is true even with, within Islam and Judaism. Uh, one year I was teaching the book of Job 
to a group of uh, Jewish people. And right in the middle of one of the sessions, one of them raised her hand and said, you know, could you explain to me why you as Christians believe in original sin? And I said, well, okay, I will. Let me start with the Old Testament. I started with Genesis 3, then went up to Genesis 6. Every thought was only evil continually and, and went through uh, some of the uh, events of the Old Testament went into the prophets and, and got into the Psalms. I think I only did six verses. And she said, got it. I understand. No need for anything more. But that's just not a part of their belief system. And every other religion, including pseudo-Christian cults like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormonism. Even if we aren't perfect, we do have it within ourselves. To earn our own salvation. Here's what this means. In every other way of thinking. That exists. Other than biblical Christianity. There is no need for the atonement. There is no need for the cross. There is no need for Jesus' death. There's no need for everything that Paul's been talking about. In chapters 1 through 7. No other religion but Christianity would say. By grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. Romans makes it very clear. We're born in sin. We know what's right, but refuse it. We're divided against ourselves. We choose to be enslaved by our sinful state. We eventually find that our pet sins have become monsters within us. Jesus nailed it. Of course, he would. From for from within, out of the heart of man, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murderers adulteries, and so forth. This is why we can't save ourselves. This is why God became flesh and died for our sins on the cross, taking those sins into himself. This is why Romans 6.23 that we were just looking at a few weeks ago says that the wages of sin is death, what is earned, wages. But the free gift, not what is earned, what is given, the free gift of God is is eternal life in Jesus Christ. So in these chapters, our minds are being recalibrated about what Jesus has done and about how we're to understand grace and about our identity in Christ. So as we are, we're on the road of becoming who we are in Christ. But we have a lingering problem. Look at chapter 7, verse 17. Sin which dwells in me. Look at verse 20. Sin which dwells in me. Look at verse 23. Sin which is in my members. Indwelling sin, indwelling sin, indwelling sin. And because of that, we struggle to reduce sin's power to be more like Jesus Christ so that we can live a life that requires an explanation. So today we're going to finish chapter 7. So far, we've said that the first 12 verses of chapter 7 are about how not to grow spiritually. The legalist in verses 1 through 6 needs to know what the purpose of the gnaw purpose of the law was not okay lest he abuse it the libertine in verses 7 through 12 needs to know what the purpose of the law is lest he neglect it both are examples of how not to grow spiritually and that was our study last week so we're going to move ahead in verse 13 but first we have to address an identity crisis and i mean by that an identity crisis I want you to just scan through verses 13 through 25. What pronoun do you see most often? Just scan down those verses. 
verses 13 through 25. What's the pronoun that you see most often? I. Sometimes me or my. And, and some scholars argue that these verses actually describe Paul's experience as an unbeliever, not our experience as Christians. So these verses are about our past, not about our present. And, and although there are good, thoughtful people who hold that view, I disagree. I believe Paul is describing times of spiritual weakness in his own life now as a believer. Now, part of me really wants to believe that. So I have to make sure I'm being fair with the text here. And I've given you some reasons why I think this way. And they're written in your bulletin so that you can be like the Bereans and check those things out for yourself. But right now, just take a look at your bulletin and, and look at, at numbers two and three. And then I'm going to move on from this. First of all, the, the second point I've made, the person in verses 13 through 25 is the person whose will is toward that which is good. And the verses are listed. And the evil he does is in violation of what he loves and wills. And those verses are listed, which is very unlike the unsaved person of Romans 3 and 8. John Murray, a wonderful scholar from the last generation, said the unregenerate man hates the good. The man of Romans 7 hates the evil. The third point in verses 7 through 12, the past tense is used. But in verses 13 through 25, the present tense is used indicating Paul's present experience. And that, that wouldn't necessarily require that understanding, but the fact that it shifts from the past to the present tense nails that down in my mind. So, okay, I'm going to move on from that. As you read the pronoun I in these verses, I, me, my, <clears throat> over 40 times in verses 7 to 23, Paul's frustration is he can isolate the component parts of himself into categories. Sometimes he means I, the old nature. Sometimes he means I, the new nature. Sometimes he means I as the total person, including both. But the main point is, just as we can't be saved by our own efforts, we can't be sanctified by our own efforts. And he's priming us by looking at himself, putting himself under the microscope with all of those eyes and the component parts of himself, priming us for Romans 8. And, and by the way, also here in these verses, and, and this is something to, to nail down, we see the utter irrationality of sin. And I know I've mentioned this several times in this study, but have you ever in your life <clears throat> looked back on a choice to sin and thought to yourself, boy, I'm glad I did that. Have you ever in your life looked back on an act of obedience to God and say and said, oh, my, I wish I hadn't done that. No, it's always the reverse. We always regret acts of sin. We always are delighted with acts of obedience. Sin is utterly irrational. Irrational. It's not even rational to God. So he describes the frustration and the irrationality, the inner turmoil of sin in three cycles of lament. Paul takes us into the counseling room. But he doesn't put us on the couch. He puts himself on the couch and offers us three cycles of lament. And, uh, and I'm going to get to the question of why does he lay this out in this form in just a moment. So let's look at verse 13. Here's, first of all, there's an acknowledgement of his condition, then a description of the conflict, 
And then a summary of his condition, plus pointing to the cause. First, the acknowledgement of his condition in verse 13. Therefore, did that which is good, that is the Old Testament law, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? Watch for it. May it never be. What a ghastly thought. No, 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 no. Rather, he says, it was sin. Nail it down. Wow. Been a long time since I pounded the pulpit and yelled, sin. But that's what he does. It was sin. The law of God is good. Verse 14, verse 16. It was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin, affecting my death through that which is good. So that the commandment, the law that exposed my sin, that defined sin, that by, through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. It's exposed for what it is. It is sin. For we know that the law, he says in verse, 13, verse 14, the law is spiritual. Got it? The law is spiritual. But I am of the flesh, sold into bondage to sin. And I believe he's talking about the topic from Romans 6. 6 like Lazarus, alive from the tomb, but still bound by the grave clothes of death. And he describes the conflict in verses 15 and 16. For what I am doing, I do not understand. Got it? Sin is irrational. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. If you're getting a headache here over the pronoun I, remember I as a believer, I as a continuing a believer with a continuing sin nature, the new nature, and both together, the conflicted I. Verse 16, if I do the very thing that I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. As a believer, I know God's word is true, including when the law condemns me for being a sinner. Why? Because it is sin that is in me. But at the same time, I'm a believer. I've got a new nature. Can't that new nature just absorb that sin nature and kick it right out of there so that I can say that within myself, I can do this? His whole point is, no, not without help. Not without help. Verse 17 summarizes a condition plus the cause. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Literally, the dwelling in me sin. He's very clear about this. As a Christian, he still has a sin nature. But sin is not an honored guest. Sin is not even a paying guest, a tenant. Sin is a squatter that needs to be evicted. So that's the first cycle. Here's the second cycle in verses 18 through 20. He acknowledges condition in verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, in my flesh. <clears throat> Does that sound familiar? He's just said that. For the willing is present in me, that is the, the total self with both tendencies, but the doing of the good is not, not present in me. He describes the conflict in verse 19, for the good that I want, I do not do, but I, <clears throat> that is in my flesh, practice the very evil that I, in my spirit, do not want. Is this getting confusing? He summarizes the condition again the claw, with the cause in verse 20. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, 
I am no longer the one doing it, but sin. Which dwells in me. Now, Paul is not denying personal responsibility for his sinful inclinations. He's he's saying. I am the one sinning by my own choice, but it's not my new nature that's making that choice. When I do make the choice to sin, I have dethroned Jesus and put myself on the throne of my life. But my nature, even my new nature, is not trustworthy and can't handle being on the throne. I need help. And at the same time, I appreciate the fact that he's not saying the devil made me do it. He's owning it. He's making these choices. You know, the Christian life is not easy, as Tracy mentioned. In one sense, it's harder than the non-Christian life. Because before you were saved, Satan was just fine with where you were. But now that you are a Christian, you became his enemy. And he is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And you are high on his menu if you want to walk with Jesus. So now that Satan has lost you forever, his goal is to neutralize you, to put you on the shelf, to lull you back into the sins that addict you in these cycles of sin, to steal away your first love. One more cycle. Verse 21, acknowledgement of his condition. I find then the principle that evil is present in me. Evil is present literally means to to, evil lies alongside me. Which me? Oh, he's going to tell us which me it is. The one who wants to do good. (laughs) Notice how he starts here. I find then the principle which which shows he's not just beginning a description of his sinfulness with an assumption. He's he's not reasoning deductively. He's looking inductively. He's gathering evidence. He's looking at his experience. And after studying it out and gathering the evidence, here's his conclusion. He describes the conflict in verse 22. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law. And the word different means another of a different kind, as opposed to, there are two Greek words for different. One means another of the same kind. This one means another of a different kind. It's an entirely different guiding principle. That I am still in the flesh and have a sinful nature. A different law in the members of my body. Waging war against the law of my mind. You remember in chapter 6 we looked at do you not know? Do you not know? Knowing, knowing, knowing. Do you not know? That's what I know. and, And this internal sin nature struggles against what I know. What I've absorbed. The biblical truth that's become a part of the way that I think. It's interesting, his captive, his his reason is held captive to his flesh, the way he describes it here. His reason is held captive to his emotions, things that change and go up and down. So again, he summarizes the cause in verse uh, verse 23. Making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. There it is, sin. Again. As believers, we are learning more and more and more in our minds about who God is, about what he's like, and about what he's done. We intake God's word in our devotions, in teaching times that are corporate together, like 
Sunday school, worship service here, um, Bible studies, Titus 2 groups, growth groups, uh, and, and so on. We intake God's word. We memorize scripture. Several of you are memorizing portions of scripture, and that's wonderful. And the, many of the kids are involved in the Bible drills program, and that's amazing. So we, we intake, the, and that's what we should be doing. But here's the deal. We will always know more than we are living. And the fact that we will always know more than we are living contributes to the frustration that we feel. May be phrased in the words of Romans 7. Here's what I want the cry of Romans 7 to look like in my life. The vertical axis would be holiness. As I grow to be more like Jesus Christ, being, being conformed to the image of the Son, being transformed by the renewing of my mind. As I become more and more like Jesus as, uh, uh, as the years pass. Then the, and the horizontal axis is the years of my life as a believer. Here's the deal. As time passes, and as I intake God's word, I understand more about what holiness looks like. I understand more of God's truth being transformed by the renewing of my mind. However, my experience of holiness in daily life is never going to catch up to what I know. Does that make sense? Okay. And by the way, that experience is more like a line that goes back here and then over here and then up. Understand. But what's the trajectory of the thing? So here's what I want to here's what I want to be true in my life that the gap between what I know and how I'm living is the Roman seven gap. That's what I want. And then that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. And helps. Why do I sin? I sin because. And and you've heard me say this for 32 years. I sin because I want to. At any given point, I'm not forced. I sin because I want to. But since I've become a Christian, I don't want to want to. Where is the disposition of my heart? And can that be retrained? What does Paul mean when he commands discipline yourself for godliness? One person said discipline is choosing between what you want now and what you want most. We'll look at that in weeks to come. But I, even as a redeemed child of God. Can't do this by myself. And that's the point. I can't do this by myself because when I do, I move back into old patterns and I default into old cycles and it's not pretty. And that's why the conclusion of the chapter is in verses 24 and 25. Wretched man that I am. Not that I was. Literally, wretched man, I. And he's looking at a present condition. This is the cry of a man or a woman or a boy or girl who knows that they're sinners, 
and may even be caught in cycles of sin. And, and the point is that I keep doing this cycle one and I keep doing this cycle two and I keep doing this cycle three. I just keep doing this. So who will set me free from the body of this death? And I love the question. He doesn't say what will set me free? What program? What cure? What flowchart? What rule? What law? What seminar? What conference? Because in the Greek, it's not a neuter, it's a masculine. The deliverance that is anticipated here is not from something. It is from someone. Not from rules. Not a what, but a who. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Skip ahead to verse 25. Who will set you free? You tell me. Look at verse 25. Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, who will set me free from the body of this death? The Roman poet Virgil wrote the Aeneid a century before Paul wrote these words. But Paul was a Roman citizen. He knew the Greek poets and he knew the Roman poets. And he would have known Virgil's work. Virgil described a particularly brutal king named Mezentius, who was, I mean, the, the Romans had a high tolerance for cruelty, but this guy was so bad that they banished him from his rule because of his brutal practices and his cruelty. Virgil describes it this way in his poetry. I'm going to read to you from first century B.C. Roman poetry. You ready for it? He's describing what this man did. Still worse he bound the living to the dead. These limb to limb and face to face he joined. O oh, monstrous crime of unexampled kind. Till choked with stench, the lingering wretches lay. And in the loathed embraces, the living died away. Oh, you imagine being chained to a body. Limb to limb, face to face, until you got so infected that you died. It's an awful, horrible death. This was a part of the cultural knowledge of Paul's world. And remember, Paul was a Roman citizen. He's writing to Roman Christians. Where is he writing to Roman Christians? In Rome. I've gone in my mind from assuming that that story about being the dead body tied to the live body was an interpretive urban legend <laughs> to discovering that it was true, to discovering that it probably wasn't just an illusion here, to thinking that this is probably exactly what Paul was thinking. Paul's point is you, you can't escape the problem of indwelling sin. Unless you have help, it will drag you down. Think of Lazarus emerging from the tomb with those grave wrappings encircling him hand and foot, but alive. And it's Jesus who says, unwrap him. Set him free. Listen to verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul points to Jesus. Do you know that Jesus totally understands the cycles of Romans 7? Hebrews says that Jesus was tempted in all points as we were yet without sin. And if you're sitting there thinking, yeah, but Jesus was God. Yeah, but Jesus was also man. 
And scripture is clear about his temptations. Besides, who truly understands temptation? The one who yields or the one who resists? Who understands how grueling a 26 mile marathon can be? The person who quits after five miles or the person who finishes the race? How did Jesus resist temptation? Well, it was through the power of the Holy Spirit. Who? The comforter that Jesus sent at Pentecost. The who that is the subject of Romans 8. Remember, Jesus said to his disciples, it's better for you that I go. I can only, I'm going to send you another comforter. Remember those words, another. This is another of the same kind. I'm going to send you another of the same kind comforter. But here's the difference. I can only be with you, but he will be in you. He's going to be your power supply. Romans 8. I'm not going there yet, but as a preview, this can be quantified. The word spirit occurs only four times in Romans 1 through 7. Seven chapters. Four times. But in Romans 8, 1 through 17, it occurs 20 times. More than any other chapter in the New Testament. By contrast, the pronoun I, which occurs over 40 times in chapter 7, is almost absent from chapter 8. So here's the summary statement. Closing out verse 25. So then, and, and these words indicate... This is Paul's way of saying, what do we take home with us? So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. But on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin, you see the contrast. With my mind, the law of God, what I know intellectually to be true from Scripture. But with my flesh, what I experience to be true, including the defeats that are a part of my spiritual life. So if I still have spiritual struggles like this as a saved person... What does it mean? Is I, am I condemned? No. 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now that I am saved, I sin, yes, but my heart's desire is not to run to sin, but to run from sin. I want to sin, but I don't want to want to sin. So that's where I am now. Secondly, verse 25 speaks of the law of God. Notice the law of God and the law of sin. The law of God can't save, but it condemns. The law of sin can't satisfy, but it condemns. So both laws, law of God, law of sin, both condemn. And now look at verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. You see where that's going in chapter 8, verse 2? Wow. Look at that. Jesus has given a comforter, the Holy Spirit. So I can't live the Christian life on my own. I'm ready for some help. So what do we take home with us briefly? This is a struggle that all believers have. I cannot say that someone or something outside myself is to blame for my own sin. I own it. It's my nature. It's my struggle. In some strange way, it's comforting to know that the Apostle Paul struggled in his own walk with the Lord. And you don't just see this in chapter seven. You see it elsewhere, too, in his epistles. Sometimes we, I think, assume, well, Paul must be above it all. Look, it's wrong to assume, you know, if I were really walking with the Lord, I wouldn't struggle with sin. No, it's when you're walking with the Lord that you do struggle with sin. Whoever your spiritual heroes are in your life, part of their going, ongoing experience is Romans 7. C.S. Lewis said, no man knows how bad he is until he tries to be good. 
Why do I sin? Because I want to. If I didn't want to, I wouldn't. But now as a believer, I don't want to want to. And last point. Why such a strong exposition of indwelling sin three times? Sin, sin, sin. The answer is this. Before we're ready for the cure, we have to be strongly convinced of the disease and of the utter seriousness of the problem. God wants us to hate sin, not toy with it. He wants us to hate it. He doesn't want us to cope with our sins just so that we learn to live with them. It's only when we hate sin, when we get the end of ourselves, that we'll turn to him for the cure. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of spirit of life in Jesus Christ has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Lord, we thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would take your truth and harness our spirits, Lord, and conform us to the image of your son as we walk with you by the spirit. I pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Take your